I want to thank you guys for having me here today. Um, I know that like 99.9% of you guys out there know me. Um, I apologize for that. But uh, I know there's some out there that don't. So as we get, uh, get ready here and get stuff out, I just want to uh, thank you guys again for having me here today. As Brent said, my name's Jesse. Um, this is where I grew up, at least spiritually, um, the past six or seven years. So um, it's just an, it's an honor and a blessing to be here, um, to be in this particular spot, to have this opportunity to preach for you here on Sunday morning. Um, I've probably slept on half the couches in this, this room here. Um, from living in Carbondale, and it's just a great honor to be here. Um, it's been it's been a rough couple rough couple past weeks here. Um, my last week here, when I was supposed to go on the uh, Nicaraguan mission trip, I came down with kidney stones. Um, if any of you have had them, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, don't wish for them. I told Amber that she was, we might not have kids after we get married because I don't want her to go through that pain. Um, but uh, I came down with something here a couple weeks ago that apparently only ten year olds get. Go figure. Um, I told the doc that I must have a young spirit. And he laughed about as much as you guys just did, so that's okay. Um, but uh, I'm going to start here today. Um, we were at Bible study uh, a couple Wednesdays ago. Um, left at Sterling Baptist Church. I'm the minister, minister of students up there. Um, we're building a youth group from scratch. So when someone asks me how many youth kids I have in the youth, I say zero. Um, it's not my fault. I just started. But uh, we were on... <laughs> If they're still zero in like six months, blame me. Um, but a couple Wednesdays ago, we had a visitor from Bolivia. Um, he's a doctor. Uh, he is the brother-in-law of our Hispanic minister. Uh, and he told a story when he came in, and, and it goes something like this. A, a father and his son were driving to the airport. As they drove to the airport, the son from the back seat asked his father, Dad, how big is God? The father looks out the window, and he points to a, a plane or a jet that's way up in the sky and he says, son, how big is that airplane? He says, well, dad, I can't hardly see it. It looks awful small. And dad doesn't say a word. Dad just keeps driving. So they get to the airport, and they go through security. They get their ticket, and they walk up to the waiting area where they got the big glass windows. And the father takes his son, and he comes up to the window, and he kneels down, and he asks his son, son, how big is this plane? And with the plane being about 15 or 20 feet away from the window, the son goes, daddy, I just, it's huge. I can't hardly grasp how large this plane is. And his dad said, son, so it is with God. The closer we walk with him, the larger we realize he is. And the farther away from where he is, the smaller he seems. Now, you keep in mind in that story, the plane didn't change sizes. God is always the same size. It's our perception. It's, it's how far we feel we are from him, not how far he really is from us. So as we go through this today, I want to, I want to focus on that. I want to, to look and remember how close we need to be to God. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. It's going to be talking about unity. It's, it's, it's Paul talking to the church at Philippi and telling them how important unity is in the church. And as we go through it, we're going to see and we're going to learn about unity in the church. But we're going to figure out that the only way to have that unity is to be focused on Christ. Is to be close to Christ. Okay? We don't change ourselves. Christ changes us. So we're going to hit on unity this morning. We're going to hit on 
how we have the ability to have that unity. And then I ask you to come back tonight because then you're going to figure out on the person, the person that we get to trust in, which, you know, is Christ. We're going to figure out why he did what he did in the last couple of verses. We're going to cover verses 1 through 8 here this morning. We'll cover verses 9, 10, and 11 tonight because there's a lot in those three verses. Um, but we're going to figure out why Christ came down and why he died for us. Why Christ came down and died. And I guarantee you if we ask the majority of the people here, why did Christ die? You'll get a different answer than what's in this text. But this text tells us the real reason that Christ came down. Before I start, Dave told me I had an hour and a half. So if I go over, I'm sorry. Um, you knew you were going to get it at some point in time. during the sermon. <laughs> So um, as, as we go through this and we do this, like I said, just... Christ is the measuring stick. He's going to show us how we can have what we have. He's going to, this text is going to show you how big he is. It's going to show you how much he can change you and how he can go through that and how, can he, affect, how he can affect you. So let's go ahead. Let's read the text. I'm going to have Trenton come up and read the text. Nick, I was going to have you do it, but I don't know if you could see over, the, see over this or not. There's an inside joke going. He's always making fun of me because he says Amber's taller than I am, but I keep reminding him I'm taller than him. So... I'll let, go, I'll let Trenton go ahead and read uh, verses 2 through 8 for you. All right, so we're going to start uh, at verse or 1. Or 1, I'm sorry. Okay, My verse head. 1. All right. If then, is the, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider, other, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come... As a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay. Thanks, Trenton. Um, give you guys a little bit of background. Okay, Some of the translations in the very first verse say therefore. And I know that, that Dwayne has always been very big on saying that it's therefore. You've got to ask what it's therefore, right? So let's go back and let's look at the first chapter a little bit. Let's look at a little bit of the background. Paul's just got done talking in the first chapter about persecution and things outside of the church that can pull a church apart. Talked about the people that were out there, the issues, the regular persecution of the church, the people that didn't believe in God but were simply, you know, making fun of the church or pulling it aside or, or calling it out and telling them how stupid they were for believing in God, that kind of persecution. But they also had people... That were, belief, that were so-called believers, that were false teachers. You had the people out there that had a false understanding of what Christ was. And that in itself can be more damaging than someone that doesn't believe in God. Because you can lead an awful lot of people astray by giving them some sort of false hope. By preaching to them about a false God, somebody that doesn't exist. Something that doesn't really quite grasp the concept of the gospel. There were people out there that were talking about that kind of gospel. 
that were leading people astray, taking them to a false god. And Paul in that first chapter was talking about that. He was talking and telling the church how to deal with that, how to deal with the outside opposition. But there was an even greater danger. He knew that two of his fellow, let's call them ministers, um, Yudoya and Sententi were fighting. And when I say fighting, they weren't probably quarreling and rolling around on the church floor with fists. But they were just simply quarreling and, and going back and forth and bickering. But here's the problem with that. When you have two of your leaders that are in fighting like they were here in Philippi, it spreads throughout the church. You start getting people that take one side and take the other and they were fighting. They were going against each other. It tears the church apart. It gets to a point where the church can't move forward because it's being pulled in two directions. How often do we see this in today's church? This is something that Paul's going to talk about now in chapter 1 where he's going to tell them how to deal with the infighting inside the church. We've talked about the outside, now he wants to talk about the inside. So how often do we see it? How often do we hear arguments or fighting about what kind of worship music to play? Maybe it's too contemporary or it's not conservative enough. Or how about what to wear? Or how about how the building is going to be used? There's fighting, there's bickering inside the church. There's fighting and bickering about insignificant theological issues. You know, there are insignificant ones in the grand scheme of things and people fight. We look at Ephesians 6.12. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. And I promise you, if there's infighting in the church, we're already at a disadvantage when we go out to fight the world. If there's infighting in the church, then it doesn't work. We've got this problem where if we're going to go out and we're going to be God's army, if we're going to go out and we're going to fight the powers that are outside of these walls, we've got to be a unified army when we walk out the doors. Too many battles have been lost in wars because people didn't know what they were doing or because they were fighting amongst each other as the fight was coming towards them. Anything divided amongst itself won't stand, including the church. The very foundation for believers is oneness or unity. And John MacArthur describes oneness as this. The unity God created in answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17.21. And that prayer in 17.21 said this, that they may be all that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may be believe, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We have to be in Christ to be one. We have to be joined together with Christ. Now we'll get into a little bit more detail here later, but I was having lunch with a with a fellow pastor yesterday afternoon. And we had, had talked about what I was going to talk about today, and he mentioned this. He said that if you, if you took a group of oranges and you laid it on the ground, and you tied a rope to the top of each one, which I don't know how that works because apples are the ones that have the stems, but you pull it up and all of the ropes go to a piece that's here, 
No matter what happens, those oranges are all individuals. You can't push them together without destroying their differences. But if you grab a hold of where they're all connected up here at the one point, you can raise them all up, and they're all unified. It's not that they do away with their differences. You focus on the point where we can be unified, and in that case, this point is Christ. But here's the catch. Maybe, maybe we're sitting here and we're saying, hey, that can't happen here. We're a big church. We're a strong church. That can't happen here. But this kind of church, the strong church, is exactly where it happens. Because in a weak church, a lot of the people don't have the foundation and they're going in a bunch of different directions. So when somebody comes in and tells them something different, that's well, that sounds good, and they walk off with them. There's no arguing. There's no complaining. But in a strong church, you've got people that are, that are steadfast and firm in their convictions. They know they're right. As well as most of the time, you know, a lot of the time we should be. We should be firm in our convictions. Jesus was God. Jesus was man. And Jesus did die for us. That's something you don't give on. But there's things that we can give on as well. And if we start fighting amongst ourselves in a strong church where people have those convictions, I promise you, the world outside those doors will know. You may think that it stays right here as long as we don't talk about it outside of these doors. But if the fighting happens here, I promise you they will know about it. Because we invite people here. The whole concept of the church is to invite people in. Is to invite the broken, the sinful, which we all, all are, by the way, into the church to give them hope by letting them know the power of Jesus Christ. And if we are fighting amongst ourselves within the church, the world will love it. Because the world is looking for an excuse to cut us down. You see it every day. You see people that are arguing secular points and argue secular points because they'll sit there and tell you, well, this Christian, this Christian, this Christian, and this Christian have four different thoughts and they fight amongst themselves. So how can they have a unified message? We've got to be strong in our convictions, but we can't be arrogant. There's, there's a difference between having a discussion and having an argument. We can have discussions in the church. It should be an open forum for discussions. If at any point we think we've got to a point where we know it all, we're wrong. If you ever are sitting in the chair when, when Dwayne is up here or Dave or Brent and they're preaching to you and you're saying, I already know all that. Then it's time for a gut check. We can't be arrogant in what we think. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about unity besides what we're going to do today. We'll look here, look at Romans 15, 5 through 7. says we have to have one voice in order to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Paul speaks about desiring to be made complete by having one mind in judgment. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says the God of peace and love will be with us when we are in unity with each other. Galatians 5, 26 Warns us not to challenge people or be boastful or challenge each other, not people. Don't challenge each other or be boastful or arrogant. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, speaks of how we have to be diligent to be like-minded. Because there is only one body in the spirit. I'm a sports nut. And if you thought we were going to get through this without me using a sports metaphor, you were wrong. But in baseball, you often hear you often often hear about people talking about team chemistry. 
They're talking about unity. Because unity can bring a mediocre team and make it great. And disunity can take a great team and make it mediocre. Because they're not focused on themselves, they're focused on the one goal for each other. They're focused on going in one direction and they're focusing on that one common goal. So let's now, let's get into the text now that we've got that background. Let's look at verse 1. It talks about if there is any encouragement in Christ. If. If here doesn't mean, well, just in case there might be. If then here can simply mean since. Since there is encouragement in Christ. It goes the same in all the other spots. Since there is consolation of love. Since there is fellowship with the Spirit. Since there's affection and mercy. So we'll look at it and it's stating that there is encouragement in Christ. So encouragement in Christ. We could probably take a sheet of paper and write down all the different ways that we're encouraged in Christ and we wouldn't have enough paper to do it. Christ gives us hope. No matter what is going on in your world, it is not bigger than Christ. That encouragement should get you through anything. Through cancer. Through the death of a loved one. Through the loss of a job. It can get you through anything. The encouragement that's in Christ. It speaks to his supreme nature. Because it doesn't say there is encouragement in money, there is encouragement in the world, there is encouragement in your boss, there is encouragement in your car. If you put your faith and encouragement in those things, I promise it will fall apart. Because when the car falls apart, or when there's not any money, or when you get laid off, you'll lose that encouragement. But you can't lose it if it's with Christ. Christ is called, we've got the comfort of our Savior. How about if there's comfort in love? Who is love? God is love. There's comfort in God. It's almost like it's repeating the same thing in a different form. He's trying to nail the point home. You've got encouragement. You've got love. Jesus was called the consolation of Israel. Or the love of Israel. There was love. And as we'll find out later on in the verses here, there was such a love that he was willing to die. That's pretty hard to find. But here's the deal. Is the word here is used in other parts of scripture. And it means a stimulating force. It speaks to the directness of God's love. Okay, there's no strings attached. He loves you. It's a straight shot from him to you. There's no strings attached. It's not about what you have to do. You can't do enough to earn his love. He gives it freely. And we should take it as such. Paul's starting this off by reminding us and the church of God's force, comfort, and power of his love. What a way to start a letter, right? It's not really the start of the letter, it's the beginning. But in this, this part, when he's 
writing to the church. And he's about ready to tell them that in the midst of the persecution they're having and in the midst of the argument that's going on inside the church, focus on God's love. He's not avoiding their issues. He talked about that in chapter 1. He talked about the infighting and the persecution. It has to be addressed. Because I promise you, if you go up to somebody that's hurting and you just look at them and say, just remember God's love, and then walk off, it won't work. But you have to show them God's love. You can remind them of God's love by your caringness for them, by, their, by your compassion for them. And compassion is different than sympathy, by the way. Sympathy, as we, we so nicely heard it in Bible study, was sympathy is driving by a man with a flat tire on the side of the road and going, man, that must be horrible. We'll pray for him as you keep driving on. Compassion is stopping alongside, getting out in the rain and helping him change it. So we get past this first part of the first verse. These first two parts have dealt with Christ himself. Encouragement, love. Now we get to the second part of this verse. If you look there at the last two pieces, and they deal specifically with the Spirit. If there's any fellowship or sense there's fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship is not man-centered. Fellowship is not showing up on a Sunday morning and sitting in the chairs. Fellowship is not just going to the game together or just having food together. Talking about fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship, true fellowship with each other is centered on Christ or else we're no different than the world. We're all believers. And at the very basic core If you are a believer, is the concept that Jesus Christ is your Savior and he died for you. And we should fellowship together with that in mind. Come together and celebrate the fact that he died for us. To come together and give praise for the fact that he died for us. Paul is encouraging them to do just that. To stop the fighting about insignificant issues and come together with the ones we have in common. Fellowship in the Spirit. And then mine says, if any affliction or mercy. It's, it's hard here because the word, com, the word compassion is used in some translations. It's in place of mercies. But here's the catch. I didn't know this until I started doing the studying. The word compassion in our English language is used to describe that person that's kind, that's willing to be with you when you're upset, to stand next to you in the midst of struggle, to be with you in triumph, to be there for you when you need someone to lift you up. That's our definition of compassion. But in the New Testament, the Greek word compassion is never once associated with a human being. It is always associated as a trait or a characteristic of God. It always goes back to God. Romans 12.1, 2 Corinthians, and even in James, they all point to God. So if you strive to have compassion, don't strive to have worldly compassion. Strive to have a character like God. Strive to have the compassion of God. That Christ and that has Christ has shown to you. 
And as we go back there a little bit to fellowship, fellowship can't be by what we have in common, guys. If we only hung out or fellowship with people that had a bunch of stuff in common with us, we'd all be a bunch of really lonely people. Okay? God made us different for a reason. We don't fellowship because of what we have in common. We fellowship because of what we have in common. We, ha- we fellowship because of our mutual dependence on Christ. John 1, 1 John 1, 3 says that we preach the word so that we may have fellowship together. We preach the word of God to remind us of what we have in common in Christ. Not what we have in common in our looks, in our jobs. And don't get me wrong. It's okay to be with a group of friends. It's okay to hang out with people that you have things in common with. But I promise that if you're just in that circle and you contain yourself inside of it and you don't go outside of the circle, you'll never really truly experience what he's got you here to experience. Because you'll never reach out to that lost person across the street just because they don't like the same things that you do. You'll never reach out to the lost person at work because they just don't have a lot in common with you. Maybe this is a little straightforward. But as it talks about compassions and mercies. If you are sitting here today and you call yourself a believer in Christ, understand this. We all deserve an eternity in hell for what we have done. We are naturally born sinful human beings. Which means this. If you are a saved child of God, God had mercy on you. You would not be here or saved if he had not. So here's the catch. If we have experienced the compassion and mercy that Christ has given to us, why would we not give the same compassion and mercy to each other sitting in this room? Why do we bicker and fight and moan over our small differences when we've all been given compassion and mercy from God? We are to reflect Him, not the world. John 13, 35 says where Jesus... It talks about Jesus says that if we, know, if we love each other, that's how we show that we're his disciples. So if your true goal and strife is to be one of his disciples and to constantly be changed and working, we've got to love our fellow believers. We've got to get to a point where we can look past the differences. We've got to come together in his comfort, in his love. We've got a fellowship with one another another because of the compassion and mercy he's had on us. We've got to have unity among us. At our very core, unity is what makes us strong. Because the unity is in Christ. And that's where our strength comes from. We've got to be unified, church. Let's look at verse 2 as we keep moving on here. It says, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. That might seem weird, right? You've got Paul, this great apostle, that's saying, complete my joy. Fulfill my joy by thinking thinking in the same way. It would make you think that he wasn't complete when people were fighting. But here's the deal. Paul knew 
exactly what complete joy was. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that you may be made full. Paul was overflowing with the joy of Christ. But he wanted more. And that's okay. Don't just settle. I've got Christ. I'm full of joy. I'm going to sit here and I'm not going to do anything. Paul wanted his church to move forward. He felt compassion for the church. He knew that the infighting would pull the church apart. So he's saying, fulfill, overflow my joy by continuing to move forward. Following what I've taught you. Listening to what I've taught you and told you and read to you. Don't fight amongst yourselves. He didn't want them quarreling. So let's break verse 2 down. We've got four different parts here. He talks about in the first part here, it says, By thinking the same way, having a common understanding. Having the same mind. Right? 1 Corinthians 2.16 speaks of having the mind of Christ. So if you ask yourself, how do we have the same mind? Because we're not going to understand everything the same way. We're never going to think the same way. You put four or five different people in a room, you get four or five different answers to a question. How do you have the same mind? You have the same mind because when you're a believer, you get the mind of Christ. So once again, it's pointing back to him. We've got to let him change us. We've got to let him give us his mind so that we can have that commonality. Since we're believers, we have that ability. We're not going to agree on every small detail. Because I promise you, if you ask me how to decorate a church and you ask Amber how to decorate the same church, you will not get the same answer. But we can have the same mind when it comes to our thinkings on Christ. The next thing he talks about is having the common love. 1 John 3.14 states that having a common love, a common mindset, is what shows us as genuine Christians. That's a kind of scary thought, isn't it? But I promise if you're coming to church every Sunday morning and you're looking for everything that's wrong... And you go home and you talk about everything that's wrong and we nitpick and we tear apart and we try everything we can because nothing's making us happy. You're doing nothing but tearing the church down. You're tearing down the body of Christ. And I promise you that word genuine in front of Christian will be very hard to apply. And I tell you that not as speaking to you but speaking to me. That verse hit me hard because I can't tell you the amount of times... I went to a church, whether it was when I was growing up or whether I was here. Maybe I came here and I had a bad attitude before I got here one morning. But it's real easy to go home and pick things apart. It's real easy to go home and talk about everything you would have done different. Because you just didn't like it. But when we're nitpicking and we're tearing things apart, it doesn't help in, unif- it doesn't help in unity. It doesn't help unify things. That third part is sharing the same feelings. A.K.A. having a united spirit. We're never going to understand things the same way as I keep saying over and over. But we cannot allow the small, insignificant details to tear us apart. I promise you, and I may regret saying this right here, but I promise you... That it doesn't matter if somebody's up here wearing a suit and tie or whether they're up here in basketball shorts and a t-shirt if they're preaching the word of God to you. If they are preaching the true, unadulterated gospel of God to you, it doesn't matter what they're wearing. 
There's insignificant details that don't matter. We cannot let that tear us apart. We have to be unified in one spirit. And then finally he says focusing on one goal. Focusing on one goal literally means to have one mind. Paul's coming full circle. Paul's got to a point where he's completed it as something that is a continual aspect. You've got to have all of these things. These four things are overlapping and inseparable that we've talked about. And you have to have them to be unified. So let's move on here quickly. We get into verses 3 and 4. It says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Let's go from, we go from a mindset and the spirit to things of the heart here. He speaks of rivalry and conceit. Let's look at rejecting selfishness first and foremost. Selfishness is the root of every sin. If we are doing something, that's what got Adam and Eve in trouble is because they thought they could be better than what God made them. Paul calls us not to be conceited, or in other words, don't have a highly exaggerated self-view of yourself. Don't be full of yourself. Sometimes that's really difficult for us to do. How do we deal with that? Because we're taught in the world to, lift our, to, to look at ourselves, always make ourselves better, be okay with who you are, have as much confidence as you can. So what's the problem? The easiest way to do it is look at yourself in the mirror and start thinking about all the sins that you've committed. And I promise you, that'll cut you down real quick. And it's not here to make you upset. It's not here to put you in a state of, of depression or upset you. It's telling you to make sure you're not looking at yourself as everybody is better than everybody else that's sitting in this room with you. See yourself as the saved sinner that you are. Romans 11.25 warns of this. Then we're getting to getting into humility. The first two were about don't do this. Now we're talking about do this. Humility is a, a synonym for the first beatitude and poor in spirit. You've got to have humility. Which leads into the next part. It says, consider in some, in, in some, in some translations it talks about regard. Okay? If I tell you to regard something or this tells you to regard something, it's saying to regard as a carefully thought out conclusion based on truth, not opinion. So when it says, in mine it says, consider others, and in other translations it says, regard others as more important than yourself, it's telling you, you have to regard others as more important than yourself, not because that's what the book tells you to, but because Christ has changed your heart and you truly believe it. You truly believe that somebody else's struggles, somebody else's issues are more important than yourself. Put others first. So now with the next thing is similar but different. It says to not just look out for ourselves, but to hold others in higher regard. You have to be able to put others' issues first if you want to look out for them. You first got to understand that their struggles are something you need to help with before you can actually help with them. And that's how he's breaking that down in here. So then you get to the last part, but also it says everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. It's a way to wrap it up. It's saying instead of doing all this, do this. Rather than taking the time to look out for your own interests, look out for the interests of others. And I promise if we all do that. The common thing I've heard is, if, well, if I'm looking out for everybody's issues, then how am I going to be taking care of myself? 
But if everybody's doing what God has asked us to do, then it's a circle and someone else is going to be looking out for your issues. It's not about us. It's about God. And God died for us. God was looking out for us and not his issues. He was looking out for us. So let's get into the big verses here in verses in verse five here. We've seen in these first four verses that Paul has laid it out for the church at Philippi and things that we can take from it. That in order to stay unified, we've got to have the right spirit, the right heart, the right intentions. And we've got to stay unified. But who is the person that allows this to happen? How can this happen? Because we can't change ourselves. If you've been doing something for 45 years, it's going to be really hard to change it if you don't let God to work through you and change it. So what do we do? A sum up of verses 1 through 4 is in verse 5. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Verses 1 through 4 summed up in a nice little basket. Notice how he words it here though. Christ Jesus. Paul's first interaction with Christ was on the road to Damascus. He saw him as Savior, as the Christ. When you hear people refer to someone, it's, you hear the words Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. A lot of the times when you, ref- you hear the people talk about Jesus Christ, it's someone that knew Jesus when, they, when he was first doing the miracles. When they first believed him as a man rather than believing him as Christ. Paul knew him as Savior and knew him as the Messiah at the very beginning. So he establishes in this very first verse, in verse 5, that Christ was the Messiah. And he does it simply by the title that he gives him. So let's get into verse 6. This who, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Man, there's a lot there. We just, Christ, Paul just told you that Christ Jesus listed him as the Messiah. Existing in the form of God establishes Jesus as God. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And if you look at Christ as 50-50, you're losing out on both aspects. It's a hard concept to comprehend. We may never fully grasp that concept because in our world you can't be 100% of two things. But we've got to distrust that that's the way it is. But what's it mean about he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage? He was God. There's the difference. Satan thought it was something to take advantage of and become higher than. Satan fell because and it says in Isaiah 14, 13, it talks about how Satan thought that he could be higher than God. And when he strived for it, he was cast out. Jesus didn't think that way. Jesus didn't see this as something to hold over people's heads. It's just who he was. He was God. Verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. I promise you, church, please don't read this and think that he emptied himself of being God. He emptied himself of the glory and majesty that he had with the Father in heaven to come down here as a slave. But he didn't give up his divine powers. He was still God. He came down here and emptied himself of that. He came down as a slave. Jesus 
was the man that God intended us to be. Taking on the likeness of men. We were made in the image of God. But Jesus has taken on the likeness of a man. That may sound confusing, but think of this. He came down, he had hands, he had feet, he had legs, he had arms, he had eyes, and he had a nose. He came in the likeness of what we remained. Paul's establishing that he's 100% fully man. Right after he established it, he was 100% fully God. He came as the lowest class person. He came as a carpenter. He came as a slave to us. So between verses 5 and 7, Paul tells us that we have an example for our hearts, our minds, our souls to be joined together in unity because of this person named Jesus who came to us, who was the Messiah, who was 100% God and 100% man. He lived here. He did this. He went through that. We can use him. So we get to the final verse. Exactly how much did he give up for you? The end of verse 7 reiterates that Jesus had come in the external form of a man, but now he mentions that Jesus humbled himself. Not just relative to God, but relative to other men. He humbled himself to become a servant for us. He could have very easily come in and walked in as the king he deserved to be, but he came as a servant. But I promise you, the next time he comes back, he'll come back in the way they expected him to in the first place. He'll come back on the horse with his crown on his head. But he came down as a slave and as a servant first and foremost. He humbled himself. How did he humble himself? By being obedient. We have a hard time doing that sometimes. Most of the time when God says, hey, I need you to do something for me. Most of the time, our response is, well, what is it? How much time is it going to take? I just don't know. But what if when God asked us to do something, our simple response was, whatever you want. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to lay myself down and do what you need me to do. Jesus was the perfect example of obedience. And it was carried all the way to the cross. Why do you mention the cross? Why couldn't you have just said Jesus was obedient unto death? Because of how gruesome and lowly the cross was. That's the next step down, folks. Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified because of what it was. It was held for the lowest class of people. Paul is trying to tell people how far from heaven, how far from where he could have been, Christ willingly pulled himself for us. I know you've heard it before, but when I was reading up on this, I want you to under I want you to hear this description that John Phillips gives of the of, of the cross here. It says the horrors of death by crucifixion began with stabbing pain when nails were driven through the hands and feet. And a sickening jolt when the cross was hauled upright and dropped into its socket so that the whole weight of the body tore at the stab wounds. Then dizziness, cramps, raging thirst, starvation, and sleeplessness all added to their torments. 
gangrene, tetanus, and fever followed. And the heat of the sun and the torment of flies contributed to the suffering. The unnatural position resulted in cramps, crushed tendons throbbed, and the arteries swelled. Folks, that's what a, that's what a man suffered on the cross. That's what Jesus suffered on the cross. A lot of times, as we've seen, he was, they were beaten before they were taken to the cross, like Christ was. But understand that Christ suffered more on the cross than any man could have because of the spiritual aspect that he undertook. He became sin for us and God forsake him. Forsake him. I can't talk today. He suffered on that cross for us, guys. For you, for the church of Philippi, for me. That's the price he was willing to pay in obedience to God. God sent him here for that. And even though he knew of the torment that he was going to take, he was obedient and walked that path. Even unto the point of death. So what we what we read? Paul showed us at the church of Philippi that God loved him. And God loved them so much that they were willing, he was willing to come and die on a cross. He did that so they could live, so they could be saved, so they could spread the word. They couldn't spread the word when they were in the middle of bickering and arguing. They were called to have the same mind, the same spirit, the same heart. And he's telling them that the only way that they're going to have all of this unity is to find themselves in the resurrected Christ. I hope you come back tonight because we'll talk about what happened after the death on the cross. But I don't want to leave you not knowing he's not there anymore. He's risen from the grave and he did it for you. It did not end with dying on the cross. Folks, we're called to do the same thing. We're called to be unified. Not as Dorisville Baptist Church. Not as First Baptist Church. Not as Sterling Baptist Church. We are called to be a unified body of Christ. We are called to walk out. We are called to go out and help other fellow believers be unified. And if you are a unified church, if the church can pull the strength from Christ as being a unified church, we can go out and change the lost world because Christ is with us. I promise you a divided house can't stand. If the leadership of a church is pulling in four different directions, the church will be pouring in four different directions and it will stay right where it's at. If I were to take a Bible and tie two ropes on it and place it right here and I had one person walk that way and one walk that way, the Bible would stay right in the middle. You've got to have somebody grab a hold and pull in the same direction and pull the church forward. Pull the congregation forward. Do what we need to do. So in a minute here, I'm going to have Brother Dave come up. We're going to have him play a song. We're going to have a time. Because maybe there's somebody out there in this congregation that doesn't know Christ. Maybe there's somebody out here that's hurting, that's struggling, that doesn't understand how they're going to get to their next spot. I want to tell you about a guy that can pull you there. 
I want to tell you about this man named Jesus that was willing to die for you, that got up off the cross and rose from the grave. I want to invite you to be a member of his unified body. This is going beyond. This isn't talking about joining a church, folks. This is talking about joining the body of Christ. So if you don't know him, if there's something working on your heart, if he's talking to you today, please don't ignore it. Please don't walk out the building without acknowledging what he's telling you. Because I'll have Brent standing right down here. There will be people here that can tell you and answer your questions. Maybe you're a believer out there and you're just struggling because of maybe some of the bickerings hurt you. Maybe you're part of the bickering. Maybe you need to come down to the altar and pray. Ask God to help you. Ask God to pull you through the struggle you're going through. We'll have people down here that can pray for you. I want you to know what it's like to be a part of this body. I want you to understand the glory of what it is to be unified in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for being here today in this place. I thank you for the opportunity to share your word, to be with you. And Father God, I just ask that if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, Father, work in their lives, pull them forward, Father, bring them to the altar. Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the opportunity to be unified. Father God, give us the strength as a unified church to pull forward and change the world in your name. Father God, pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.